0: Welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Georgia. And I'm Althea. And with us today we've got Jess, who is, like nearly all our guests, a first year history PhD. Welcome Jess. Hi. So could you start by just telling
1: us a little bit about who you are and how you came to be studying your (laughs) PhD at Manchester? So I'm 26 and I'm from London originally, but I did history and French at the University of Leeds. In 2010 and finished in 2014 and then I worked for a bit in weirdly kind of creative advertising production for a few years and then went back to UCL to do my masters and now I'm up here in Manchester. How long have
0: you lived in Manchester just since September? Yes.
1: yeah. How are you finding it? I love it. It's great it's like London but a bit smaller. Quite a lot smaller. Quite a lot smaller but like has everything condensed like concentrated down so it doesn't take an hour to get everywhere, like in London. <laughs> Good for getting around. Yeah, definitely. Could you also just tell us a little bit about your research and your project? So I do women's history in the post-war period in Britain and I'm particularly looking at kind of female friendship and conflict in, in, a city, in the inner city, especially in regards to kind of urban regeneration, you know, new council housing estates and focusing on Manchester, London and Birmingham. What kind of methodology are you going to be taking? So it's kind of a mixed methodology of using um, contemporary sociological data. So a lot of there were a lot of surveys done by sociologists looking at um, the impact of new urban environments on social relations and also be doing oral history interviews as well.
0: Really exciting kind of mix of methodology, I think. I feel like um, oral history has so much to offer, especially in terms of reclaiming women's histories. You know, it, it lets us access stories that sort of just would never
1: have been written down well, exactly and I think with um with female friendship and uh, you know female relationships in any sense especially in the post-war period there then oral historians don't have don't tend to kind of interrogate those subjects with women they're the kind of the, the trend is to look at marriage or kind of childhood and you know, even just sex, but the day-to-day interactions between women is really, rarely explored. So I think for me to do oral history would allow me to kind of grill women on those experiences.
0: Having heard a little bit about your project, the aspect of it that I find really intriguing is less the angle to do with friendships and more the angle to do with conflict. So I mean, I love a cat fight.
1: Yeah, likewise. So I did, so my master's was on female friendship. Uh, among Quaker women, um, and the, in the Victorian period, and so all the sources were letters. So the kind of dominant image was just like that: all women got along. But kind of going into the twentieth century, yeah, you find a lot of cat fights. I found lots of photography of women kind of getting up in fights in the street and stuff like that. And uh handbags of, flying. Yeah, ha- literally handbags flying. You know, fists in face. Um, <laughs> and then, um, yeah, then on like the kind of uh, the saddest side especially in Birmingham and like Manchester, the racism is, uh, mm. is very rife, uh, which again kind of seems to be hidden from the mainstream. Yeah,
0: I suppose there's such a strong class element there as well if you're in the new estates and there is sort of a changing demographic, all of these uh, groups being pushed together into conflict.
1: Exactly yeah and like much like today this idea of kind of competition over scarce resources to do with housing, who's getting the better housing, who's getting more benefits, you know why are there so many single mothers getting more access to housing and money than I am, a lot of antagonism between women.
0: That type of antagonism that we see as well and that as you say we absolutely still see today to some extent there's a kind of a socio-cultural force behind that. I don't quite have the the words to articulate what I mean but it We are told that we're in competition with one another in a way that is not like fully articulated but it's kind of like if she has it then I can't have it. There's a false scarcity of resources that seems to be promoted to women.
1: Yeah definitely and like I feel like just in terms of like in the media today the competition between women usually is like quite artificial like it might be competition over men or like body image but what I'm not finding anything like that in my research. But also, I think in terms of like the Me Too movement, it's female friendship has become such a popular subject. People are, like really celebrating it, um, which is amazing. But um, but I think it's also important to remember that women didn't always get on.
0: Something in the kind of friendships and conflicts that we experience as women—something I've been thinking about on my own research today, because I work on women as well—is whether there is something that is unique about the female experience, whether it's something that you could argue is sort of um, essential or inherent, or if it is all to do with the constructs in which we exist. And that's such a challenging thing to come up against when you're trying to work on any kind of women's history, I think.
1: Yeah, and you don't want to kind of tokenize it, do you? And kind of make it seem like women's history is only relevant to women um and i guess that's kind of a lot of what you do in your first year you're kind of justifying it i don't know if it's the same in other departments but a lot of the i feel like i'm constantly trying to be like why women's history or you know or why even bother like exploring you know such mundane things but i do think uh it's really important otherwise i wouldn't be doing it yeah well that's that's (laughs) exactly it
0: yeah the question The question that almost keeps me up at night when I think about female photographers is, does it matter that they were women? You know, beyond the fact that not many women were doing it, are they just interesting because they're novelties, or is there something about them being women that is actually important or changes something about their lives and work? I guess the good thing about that question is that whether the answer is yes or no, there is still a project there. Yeah. Uh the truth comes out.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Well that's uh that's the secret to not being too stressed about your PhD. You have to not have something that you're intending to
2: prove yeah. at the start. A How lot- can I set up my PhD so that no matter what the results are, I don't fail.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I literally I'm the same my kind of my dominant argument is like were were people becoming more individualistic towards thatcher's years um you know popular individual kind of me 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 um but i don't think it'll ever be answered so that leaves me in a really good position I can just like yeah 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 no yeah that's fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
0: i mean the other thing that you talk about is that uh the idea of um you know the, the history that you're doing is in some way the history of the mundane but i think that there's um there's kind of a, a historical force at play there as well isn't it and that the things women did are perceived as mundane as or kind. as less important it's not the actions of great men but the sort of the small lives of
1: normal women as if that isn't important well yeah exactly i think i probably what i meant i mean it I, it's, it's, it's the everyday isn't it yeah. and like i kind of came about social history because i just felt like i was not even as just a woman as just like a really what i considered like quite boring person like i was <laughs> like where is my history like <laughs> the history of boring yeah. people. <laughs> Um, Exactly and just like um, even when I was looking at Quaker women most of the women in the archives were kind of upper middle class women who had strong roles in the community and uh, I define myself through my relationships with my mom with my sisters and with my best friends and I like to think that a lot of other women do um, as opposed to defining themselves through their children or their husbands or their work. That's why I got interested in social history I guess.
2: So, what would you say the difference between defining yourself by your mom, your sister, and your best friend, and defining yourself by your children, your husband,
1: would be? Mm, I guess in terms of uh, well, one there's kind of the the kind of the heteronormative narrative in that you're you're defined through kind of relationships uh, which have been established by the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of taking the feminist standpoint, that marriage used to be an institution that was you know transferring property and within the kind of the husband-wife dynamic there are different power dynamics uh, you know at play especially regard to sex and money um and and likewise with children there's a dependency there which i think are are different when you look at kind of homosocial relationships between women what's been kind of
0: your experience of transitioning into using oral history? Uh, You mentioned that you haven't sort of started using it yet, but it's obviously it's a methodology that's got like a lot of challenges to it.
1: Yeah, well, like I've, I've, while I haven't done the oral history, there's loads of stuff online. The UK Data Service uh, has a lot of kind of other oral history transcripts. And I guess like the main thing is like how people remember, I guess it ties into kind of museum uh, studies as well, like Althea's research, with regards to women tend to not kind of what they remember are usually defined through their having children um, or you know when they got married these are kind of big markers in their life it used to be like I got married or you know I got pregnant then I got married and the the kind of what I find the really interesting stuff tends to not be a huge deal in in what I'm reading Um, and I don't want to impose on that kind of the sources that for many women to be involved in mother-toddler groups or setting up play schemes. For me that's very important and to them it might not be that important, but I guess it's shifting how women remember their lives and yeah, which I'm kind of grappling with I guess.
2: So going from the major milestone life events to what actually makes up a life because maybe getting married and having children, maybe that's three events in Mm. your entire life. Is that what you're kind of saying? Yeah,
1: those are three events. And also it kind of it suggests that women's uh, life stories uh, come about through um, quite normal events, which kind of seems like most people go through having children and settling Mm -hmm. down um and but it's the exceptional things which make them each which make every woman different or make every person different um and that can only kind of really be found in their kind of daily lives i guess
0: yeah as you say these these major life events there's actually quite a lot of commonality to them especially people who got married in the same decade or something the stories around that might be relatively similar but yeah their daily interactions and their friendships and relationships with their uh sort of non-spousal relatives uh, probably yeah I, I can't really think of many things that have many studies that I've read or anything that have dealt with that and I remember uh, in my master's coming across one that was about gossip
1: yeah <laughs> gossip's gonna be hopefully a, a major theme <laughs> In my, I mean, this is like what I enjoy reading about most is like women talking about like, well, that lady across the street, I heard her do this. And I'm like, yes, because, you know, <laughs> it's like jackpot. But a lot of the time I feel like I'm making, I, I'm i like, in, like you say with your photography, kind of did it matter who they were women? I often ask myself like, were women even, did women even have friends? Because it seems like they didn't. Like it seems that like a lot of women retreated into the home. In Britain, you know, women were kind of made to believe that that was their role for, from like what politicians said. But I kind of find it so hard to believe that women didn't interact on a daily basis with other women. Finally, I'm like finding some stuff, which is great. And also just like knowing about my grandma, her set, like living in London and my mom as well. They kind of made... Best friends with neighbors, and also other women with children. Like I really like interested in how women interacted at like the school gates Mm. uh, and things like that. I guess so. It's just frustrating when you know it to be true, but you need to prove it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. I no. I I totally uh, I totally see what you're coming from there. And again, it partly it is just when you're dealing with micro history and the history of the everyday. You have to work ten times as hard as someone who wants to do an economic history because to
1: find the sources, you've just got to you've got to be doing a lot more work. And I like I definitely feel like with history, or maybe with just like most uh, research at the moment, a lot of it is you're you're because you're looking at something so particular, it's not going to be there, it's not going to be in your face. You've got to do. I spent the whole day in Birmingham yesterday. I must have taken about like eight hundred photos uh, in the archives, and I'm just like dreading going oh, through them. No. I know. I know. I, don't, I think I'll maybe find one thing. I found evidence of like a play bus, which was like a, a crash set up by women on a bus in Birmingham. And I think that might have been like the only thing that might be useful for my research but how
2: do you, you deal with that volume and that level of tediousness of uh, nothing
1: nothing I, nothing just like dreading going back to the office today okay and going, no yeah it's it's like it's it is really mind-numbing and people ask like how's research going and you're like, oh it's okay like, only okay like yet like it is uh, it's never gonna give you what you want but when it does it's yeah. like a really great feeling and i had a really great week last week so i'm not expecting miracles this week yeah. so yeah highs and lows yeah. i think
0: the archive is it's this experience of like i only have this much time to yeah. be here so i have to take pictures of everything i don't have to t- time to stop and check if it's relevant i don't have time to read it while it's here i have to
1: yeah take 800 pictures i don't have time to eat either yeah I oh do. And That's then, bad. yeah, it is. <laughs> I so the thing is, I don't know why, but like a lot of people are like, "Oh, I love archive research; is the best." Why? But I <laughs> like, did really dislike it. I'm not afraid to say that. Like, like I, I really can't stand going to the archives. Um, I want everything to be there, so I know I have to take the photos. I've done
2: some, and I worked in the archives. Yeah, like, I had all the time in the world, and I still hated it. I was yeah. like. It, I, it was very tedious for me, but then so is reading, like, a 100 papers, yeah. Yeah. which is what I had to do in my first semester, and that was completely boring, and it took me a while because this was such a dream for me to be here doing this research. Mm-hmm. It, I was a bit upset that I was bored at work until I realized, look, this is your job. Everybody hates <laughs> their job sometimes. Like, just because you like your job, I guess as an idea and generally you're happy with it doesn't mean that you
1: are going to be always happy to be doing it it's okay to be bored and sometimes like the joy is actually the end product yeah so like oh just read yeah like a hundred different articles or whatever um and it's like finally having like maybe a supervision meeting or your panel to be like oh i actually did absorb everything that i've read in the past three months or Yeah. yeah
0: And I think, like, if there's one thing that you
1: learn when you do a podcast where you interview lots of different
0: PhD students is that that everyone does it differently and everyone enjoys some different aspect of it. I am never, ever going to be the person who enjoys going to the archive or reading papers. (laughs) Uh, I'm definitely much more of a a hands-on, you know, I want to be working with visual sources and writing and analysing. But I also know that the way I work is unbelievably stressful to other people have and
2: we met
1: anyone who actually likes the reading part i love reading oh okay yep. i love Welcome. the sec- i love the secondary literature really yeah, yeah yeah it's my favorite aspect of it and i'm like why am i not That's... doing like intellectual history <laughs> um which i've got like a friend doing but I, I i'd find it really frustrating to look at into like philosophy because i would just be like it's not relevant No one knows what this is. People
0: are absent from intellectual history to some extent. You want the sort of the human story. It's it's really nice to have someone on who enjoys secondary literature though, because I think we've got kind of a little bit of an anti secondary yeah, literature. Everybody bent. has been like,
2: Oh the secondary. I hit the secondary, my supervisor just like told me off because I hadn't read any secondary and so. But like we we it. are
1: we are the secondary <laughs> literature. Like our PhD will be a
0: secondary source for
2: someone,
0: so Yeah, this is my problem. It is pure vanity. <laughs> I read someone else's work and I'm like I could have done that better.
1: <laughs> I um I just love arguing. I have like a real compulsion to just argue. I will always be like the devil's advocate. Every argument, it might just be like the most stupid thing. So it I would think be I like
0: kindred
2: spirits. Yeah,
1: I love looking at secondary literature because it just means I can get to like feel mm. part of the debate. It seems
2: like there's been like two types of PhD students I've bumped into. There's those that do this because they like to study and those that do it because they like to argue. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's an extremely
0: accurate observation. Also like... Sorry, go on. I was going to say, which is why the last episode of the podcast with George is 40 minutes because I love to argue and he loves to argue. (laughs) You guys just had a communist Uh, smackdown, didn't you? uh, We kept it relatively tame on the communism front.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I like, just love, um, like, I used to work in like a really boring office like when I like between my MA and the PhD I was working in office and it was so boring it I would honestly be watching the clock I had to hide the clock <gasps> from my desktop oh. because I was just checking it like obsessively and now like to, I feel like I now have the to be able to have the opportunity to get paid to do stuff that I enjoy doing is like such a gift and I'm all every time I'm like getting frustrated I'm just like do you remember those days Jessica
0: I find the same I had uh, a career in between undergraduate and masters and some days I look back and I'm like man I'm so glad I'm so glad I don't have to be in the office at nine and and then some days like recent weeks it has been a bit like oh yeah but when I had a job I did know what I was doing and someone would tell me if I needed to do it differently like it was a bit bit more guidance I had more
1: money Mm, the money (laughs) yeah Mm. I know I had more money and also like you could leave the sort of work I did I just leave it at the front door when I came in whereas like where like I sometimes I have dreams where I'm like I'll wake up like mid-debate or Mm -hmm. something and I'm just like god get out of my head (laughs) I it hasn't invaded
0: my dreams yet but I have found that I can't take books home my books have to live at the library or on my desk
1: never, never I never work at home no it's
2: my my home is sacrosanct that's where i live i've just coming to the uk and people being like oh no you working 40 hours a week if you do more than that like we'll be concerned about you because what is wrong with your life that you don't want to live yeah and and i'm just like you know what guys this is a great idea so (laughs) i've just kind of embraced that and um i i work like you know, like a bottle of syrup, whatever container you put it in, that's how thick it is. That's like my work ethic now. It's like, however long the deadline is, that's like how much work I'll be doing.
1: I think there's something to be said, like definitely an undergraduate and when the kind of, maybe the competition's higher and that masters when it's just like a year long to like throw yourself full throttle into it. Um, But you've got the grade now. It's like, this is your own research you don't have to slave away you're only trying to work for yourself no
0: one's ever going to give you a number grade at the end of this yeah exactly it's it's pass fail and the timeline's relatively soft
1: yeah exactly and also exactly so as long as you do it like within five years obviously you might run out of money but no one's going to be like it's due september 15th 2021 you know if you're going to be a day late that's fine Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, an expression that just you hear a lot on the PhD journey is, it's a marathon, not a sprint. It is a useful thing to keep in mind. Like, if you try and do it all, all at once, you're just going to burn yourself out. Then it will take you longer than if you had just been steady the whole time.
1: Mm. So where, where are you from,
2: I'm from the United States, but I've moved. This is my, I think, 19th move so, coming oh. to Manchester. So, I've lived in Australia three times. I've lived uh, around the U.S. Um, my dad was in the military, and we moved every year. Then he oh. got out when I was eight, and he still moved every year. So, that's <laughs> kind of the story of my life. So, I actually really like Brutless Manchester. child. <laughs> and I am, yeah, I'm hoping to stay in the U.K. when I'm finished. So, yeah, I actually really like it here, and that's quite new for me because...
1: Yeah. I mean, you, it, you're so used to moving around. I yeah. I thought
2: it was going to be hard to stay here for three years because my stability growing up was knowing that if I didn't like it, there would be a new place in six months. Yeah. And so, so yeah, like the, the know, the knowledge that I would never be trapped anywhere instead mm. of the
1: knowledge that I had roots was kind of what I was going on. So God, it must feel so weird. Like I've just like moved up from London and like that is like oh big deal, but just like move to move another country to undergo like quite a big deal must feel quite daunting.
2: Yeah, I, I really I can't really say I know much different because um, we moved to Australia the first time when I was ten. Yeah, and every time I moved abroad, I was always happier than when I was in the United States. So coming here, I was just like, okay, I think I know myself enough yeah. to know that like I'll do whatever it takes not to go back. Mm, so, why did you
1: Why did you pick Manchester?
2: I'm pretty much my supervisor. But I
1: had to go to the UK for my PhD because
2: all the ones in the US are five-year master and PhD combined. Mm. And I had already done my master's degree and they wouldn't let you transfer it in. And I'm like, no, I'm not repeating my master's. I worked no. hard enough yeah, for yeah, that. Yeah, like, yeah. I'll leave instead. So.
1: that was your master's?
2: It was um, Johns Hopkins University, but it was online. So, oh,
1: yeah, this is my first time away from home. Oh, wow. Yeah. <gasps> Big deal. How are you finding it? good cooking for yourself
2: well yeah I mean I've had to cook for myself before I mean at the beginning you know sometimes it's like wow I did a good job and then it's like I don't want to eat this and there's (laughs) enough for three days waste money or disgust myself which (laughs) do I choose the thing I'm enjoying about this
1: most is that Jess has kind of transitioned into a natural host (laughs) sorry I was just like wanting to I love knowing like if people, if people aren't from the UK, like, where are they from? Just, like, to th- I had a friend from my MA who was from Boston. And I was like, why? Why does she, like, want to come here? Like, obviously, there's nothing, like, not great. But, you know, the US is meant to have, like, these amazing universities. Especially Boston. Yeah, exactly. She went to Harvard. I think she d- UCL was just cheaper. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. And, yeah, it's funny to think that our universities are cheaper.
0: but
2: They, yes, they that are. That is true. And they're faster and they're cheaper. And, I mean... There's some stuff about living in the U.S. that if you've lived abroad, you're kind of ruined for. Um, Mm. The consumer culture is one of those. I mean, you find that people work hard so they can buy more and they don't enjoy what they have. Mm. And also, sometimes it feels like things are just too easy to get. And, like, it's not enough of a challenge, I don't know, if you've lived abroad. And so I think that I guess I was kind of ruined for living in my home country after I had grown up living abroad. But, I mean... Yeah, I mean like there's a lot of good things about living in the US, um, but it's not for everyone. So mm. that's another reason why people come, I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah, like I think we it's always like framed in the media just like having everything. Um, and like I I've only been once. I went to New York and Boston. And it was like lovely, but um I just like you like Europe. I like Italy and France mm-hmm. and Spain. Like that's where I want to go. <laughs> I recently visited Australia and I like Australia Really quite quite a lot, good. nice weather. Where would you go? Just to Sydney.
0: It was oh, a nice. very short visit for a conference. Oh, but it was cool. awesome.
1: ah, amazing. Yeah. What yeah. kind of conference?
0: Um, it was a history conference. I was giving a paper.
1: <gasps> Fantastic. Yeah, it was, it Did was, they
0: pay for cool. the travel? Uh, my funder paid for the travel. Oh. Her funder is
2: very generous. <laughs> they AHRC. It is Indeed. <laughs>
0: Um, (laughs) I love how we're sort of like whispering it
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't make a big deal out of it Mine's mine's, uh, the the school so Mm. they'll only pay for my travel uh, within the UK Which is fine.
0: Yeah, (laughs) still, you know, it certainly still opens up
1: plenty of opportunities for conferences and things. Yeah, yeah. especially if you're a British historian. uh, It's mostly going to be conferences
2: within the UK.
0: I think you're the first British historian we've had on. We've had a few Mm. historians from Britain.
2: Yeah, Sam is a British historian, but he studies the US. And I was like, what, why?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, um, Tanya uh, is, she does like suffragettes, but she's trying to... She's doing like transnational, so oh, okay. U.S. and U.K. and I guess a lot of my work because it's looking at kind of the African Caribbean community, um, it is quite transnational, yeah. transatlantic as well. So that's the kind of the buzzword I feel for like history these days. It's like, yeah. don't make it British, make it transnational. Like, I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. So.
0: Uh, We ask every guest on the podcast if they have some kind of uh, funny story or funny anecdote to share from their research life. I was wondering if you have anything to share with us.
1: I've been really struggling to find, I guess, like not from my own everyday uh, life, but I've like have a lot of funny. I come a lot across a lot of funny things Um, One now that I'm remembering, this is great. There was um, a researcher in the '60s who was studying. His name's Dennis Marsden. Who studied uh, single women and poverty among single mothers in particular. That's what he was interested in. It was gonna. It was like a uh, a research project that was gonna help the government to create better funding and better kind of benefits for women with children, single mothers with children. Um, And uh, so I had access to all his kind of raw. Interviews that he did with these women living in the south coast and in and in the north, and uh, they're really interesting uh, notes and interviews. But all over them, he like scribbles these really rude remarks about oh the women. No. And one of them was, like <laughs> one of them was like, made me an awful coffee! Um, <laughs> exclamation point! And then like often like really horrible. Um, like notes about like the way they looked that he was like Mrs. Smith or whatever it was like a round rather plain looking woman Um, yeah it's really bad and I'm like you know obviously he would never publish this but in his notes he's just like completely scathing and it's like I mean so incredulous that like that's how he would speak about these kind of subjects it's meant to be kind of a really nice like study to kind of help women but he's just being so scathing about them (laughs)
2: that
0: that genuinely is uh, really funny the thing is like at the risk of making myself sound like a bad person I can understand exactly why if you were doing a lot of interviews Mm. you would make a note to remind you who it was yeah yeah, yeah. and if you thought that no one except for you would ever read it you'd be like oh yeah she was the round one
1: yeah and it's and it's not (laughs) like he's kind of like doing a journalistic piece with a slant like i feel like he's kind of advocating for to these women so i feel like yeah he was definitely his way of kind of reminding himself about the way that these women looked uh yeah, it's been like, oh, my God.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've written snarky notes to myself about the author of a paper. Like, the amount of boredom increases the amount of cynicism. Mm. So, like, I've been, I mean, some of my notes, like, in EndNote are like, da-da-da, this person, complete foolishness, da-da-da. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or just,
1: like, crap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just to remind myself never to cite them.
2: <laughs> yeah. For the, stuff like that, that, you know, you're, you're bored and you're just like, I hate this, really bored. Why'd I have to read this? Like, you put a period in the middle of the sentence.
1: Come on. (laughs) Sometimes, yeah, sometimes I don't know why. I will just hate an author as soon as reading about it. And I can't justify it. But then I try to find ways to justify, in an academic sense, why I really can't stand the book. And I, like, trawl through loads of other, like, literature to, like, make me feel that I'm justified in disliking an author um
2: I felt that and I don't know if it's instinct or if I was just tired and grouchy but there's this one paper that like I was so angry about this one paper one night and then like when I see it a week later like I, I had written like the note in the margin that one that made you so angry like, so I would know <laughs> which one it was and I'm reading through it I'm like what's wrong with this paper it's just like the rest of them so do yeah. you think there's something about instinct or do you think it's just like
1: <laughs> a lot of it is style so I find text that use the first person I really don't like them. Okay,
2: they told me to use first person. Yeah, I know.
1: Or if they're not using the first person, people who build on their own um, kind of background to fuel the story, which I know is kind of a trend. Um, certainly within like women's history, a lot of second wave feminists in, kind of would use it. They would talk about their own mothers and their own experience to help them with the history. And I and I really, yeah, I think that is a, it can be good. But I've read a few where it just, I just feel like it doesn't sit well with me. I think maybe I'm a bit, like, boring.
0: I'm kind of mm-hmm. with you on reading work by second-wave feminists, something that I have to do quite a lot for mine, and without sort of diminishing, like, the importance of their ideas and, you know, the work that they did, at the same time you feel like, to some extent, they universalize their own experiences. We are mainly talking about white women. We are mainly talking yes. about women from you know they were academics so they were probably from middle class families and they feel like their experience can be universalized to every woman by which they mean every woman just like me
1: yeah um, well even even like within the kind of the more working class histories you still find you know white historians being like i couldn't find my own history within the books and it's like yeah but so many people can't find their own history and but then and they talk about going through their mothers cupboards and kind of finding photographs and uh, I am ju- I, not saying that history has to be ob- objective. It can never be objective, but yeah, you have to remember that you're kind of. I feel like maybe you're you're doing this for a greater cause, as opposed to just kind of like writing your own. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know.
0: I quite like family histories and historians who engage with, you know. So I got into history through having like a relatively interesting family history, but on the other hand, you do have to recognise that your family history is a small part of. A big narrative and for all that micro history matters if you just want to write about the experiences of people who are more or less related to you you don't have to have an academic career to do no
1: that. yeah but navel-gazing isn't it anyway thank you so much for no being worries. our guest it's been an
0: absolute pleasure really interesting to uh, to hear from you thank yes, you, as thank, always, you very much. Sh- thank you
1: that was great
0: for co-hosting Althea and as uh, as always, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens mm-hmm. on the
2: podcast stays on the podcast.
0: Not Safe for Publication is a new podcast about the lighter side of humanities research at the University of Manchester.
1: If you're a humanities researcher who has something funny to share, please be in touch with us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. You can also
2: follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Podcast have an adequately happy existence.